Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and the Humanities, a podcast from American University. I'm Tom Merrill. I'm a professor of government uh, at American University. And uh, I'm here by myself today without my usual co-host, Sarah Marsh. But uh, I am here with a guest who is Michael Grenke, uh, tutor at St. John's College, um, sometimes in Annapolis and sometimes in Santa Fe. Um, he's also an expert on Nietzsche and has translated, uh, published two books of Nietzsche translations, including Prefaces to Unwritten Works and On the Future of Our Educational Institutions. I understand he has more translations uh, in the offing. Um, but uh, Michael, we're not here to talk about uh, your work. We're here to talk about uh, a book by someone that you knew well, Lee Van Boxel's War Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism, which is a book that that is just out. Um, and I, we should say something about the strange circumstances that lead us to be you and I talking about this today. Of course, we were colleagues uh, together a long time ago, uh, and I've always learned things and enjoyed uh, your company. But um, tell us about Lise Van Boxel and this book. All right, thank you very much for having me, Tom. Uh, Lise Van Boxel was my friend, my very good friend for uh, about a quarter decade. She was born in Canada and lived in a nickel mining town in the northern part of Ontario, went to the University of Toronto and studied political science and literature. And I think particularly her interest in literature and her uh, literary skills were very helpful to her in her own reading of Nietzsche. And after undergraduate, uh, she she went to the Boston College and got a master's degree in political philosophy, and then back to Toronto and got her PhD in political philosophy, writing about Nietzsche. The book that we're about to talk about today uh, came about uh, uh, as a kind of extreme revision of her dissertation um, that wasn't initially intended to be quite so extreme, but I think she discovered a lot of new thoughts uh, while working on it and produced a substantially different work. The focus of her dissertation had been to show in, the, in Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morals that the two different major types of morality actually had a kind of implicit consensus about the human good. And so that was by itself, I think, a fairly significant thing to try to work out. And that, that's what her dissertation did. Now, the work that became War Speak, this book that Lise wrote, really was an attempt to try to go beyond that consensus about the human good to try to figure out exactly what the, what the, I want to say, the good life for a human being really would be and what it would look like. So. That was the big step beyond, I think. Uh, and in the consequence, that means the, the work turns out to be a very close reading of the genealogy of morals, somewhat selectively presented, so not, not a, a, a detailed commentary at every point, that focuses on uh, the central issue of nihilism, understood, I think, not as uh, a belief that nothing is true, but understood as Nietzsche presents it in, in the genealogy of morals in uh, the first essay at the end of section 12. That is that nihilism, what he calls nihilism today, which is a kind of weariness 
with respect to the human. I, I think it presents itself as a condition of being worn out with respect to hope for this world and for human possibilities within this world, primarily caused by an attempt that had been perpetrated on humanity, uh, how would I say it, surreptitiously or, or secretly to try to devalue the world. And a lot of this has to do with uh, presenting what's good as belonging to some kind of other world, the afterworld or something like that, that has been a kind of dominant interpretive basis for human life for more than two millennia now. Constantly comparing our life which with things that are transient, that come into being and pass away against an imagined world of things that are always and never, never cease to be, it has this tendency of devaluing what we have and what we, uh, what we know about our, our lives from our own actual immediate experience and makes us begin to despair as to whether there's anything human beings can do for themselves in this world. Uh, so uh, I think Lise rightly presents this, this version of nihilism as emerging even out of people who, out of, not people, but out of the, the concepts that derive themselves from this afterworld, from the, the notions of the eternal and, and the immortal, and from notions of the absolute. So I think contrary to uh, the concerns of a lot of people who would be uh, upset about and worried about nihilism, it, who think that the answer to nihilism is to embrace some older view that holds human beings as having access to some realm of absolute truth. This work shows in part that the, the belief in such a world, the belief in such an absolute world leads to nihilism. It actually causes the problem that they're worried about. And so a, a return to these older thoughts is no sort of solution whatsoever. Uh, so war speak as, as least presents it as a kind of counteroffensive against that effort that made human beings orient themselves outside of the world they live in, in this imagined static, eternal realm of being and truth. It's an attempt to overturn those concepts and to evolve a new positive life-affirming ideal that, that is this worldly and humanly possible that makes us have, what I say, realistic hopes for human for the human future and for our own ability to make human existence better and better. So let me, yeah, uh, yeah. maybe let's say the last thing. Please. Why am I here? Why are you, <laughs> Why yes. am I here? Why are you here? Yeah. Before War Speak was actually published, uh, Lise died of, of lung cancer. Um, up to her last day, she was concerned with the fate of her book and uh, child. A lot of uh, the responsibility for this fell on me as her friend and as uh, the executor of her estate. So I, I had to, uh, after she died, 
I had to uh, supervise carrying out the publication of the work and write the introduction that she intended to, to have on the book. And I talked with her a lot about what she wanted with respect to that introduction. So I at least knew what she wanted. I didn't have uh, the opportunity to present her a text that she could approve. And I supervised the very minimal editing that was done, uh, mostly just to clear out remaining typographical mistakes. Right. So, so um, we should, first of all, we should give a shout out to the guys at Political Animal Press for publishing this because it is a service to the world. So I've read this book twice now and, and enjoyed it and learned a lot from it. And, and, and I want to talk about the, what your, the summary that you gave. I guess the most controversial thing, um, just to put a pin in this, for, and for many of our friends who read Nietzsche, they think that Nietzsche is the arch relativist. And I take it that Le part of Lisa's thesis and which is also your thesis, is that Nietzsche is not a relativist, that he has a, a, an account of the human good, that he thinks we would be better off if we acknowledged and accepted and affirmed, right? Um, but before we get to the substance, and I, and I do, I want to talk about genealogy of morals, I, I just want to say something about Lise. Um, so I didn't know her well, I mean, nowhere near as well as you did, but um, I did know her and she was a very striking presence. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, was she a model at some point? She yeah, certainly yeah, had a she strong was a runway sense. model. Yeah, she certainly had a strong sense of style and a sense of presence, and uh, and I think that style is a good Nietzschean to give up oneself a certain kind of look. Um, but she had a real um, presence in the room, and um, that that was impressive. You were in the you were in the presence of a person with character. I guess would be one way to say it. And the other thing that was very clear, even from a distance, and I only really knew her from a distance, was that she loved Nietzsche. She thought that, that Nietzsche was saying something that was not only interesting in an intellectual sense, but that was um, that spoke to deep parts of the human spirit. Um, and that that perhaps, um, whether you think that her Nietzsche is ultimately persuasive or not, and right, that's an open question, but, um, but that allowed her to uh, understand Nietzsche in a way that many people who only are, you know, you sort of do it as part of the canon, as sort of the drive-by, right? Like, oh, I have to do Nietzsche, and then I have to do Kant, right? Um, but that, but it gave her a connection to the text in a way that that many of us don't have. Um, yeah, I, I guess I want to say, you know, with this project, um, Lise thought she was uh, not wasting time. Uh, that she was reading the best thinker uh, concerning the best human life and reading a central book that really uh, pulled together the threads of his philosophy in a, a kind of way that made them coalesce and focus. And so in this respect, I want to say that you can see the sort of weight of seriousness that she brought to this project. And it's also, I think, something of the feeling of the publishers, that this is the sort of book that um, is the reason they want to publish books. Right. So let me ask a question about the title. So the title, War Speak, is, for those of us who know Genealogy of Morals, is, a, is a, an allusion to the subtitle of Genealogy of Morals, a polemic, right? Polemic come from polemos for war. Um, but the title is also a pun, is it not? Uh, war's peak, right? <laughs> that you're at the at the height of of war, 
that and and perhaps well, I mean one can think of lots of things in modern times. We're going to have a war against war, the war to end all wars, right? Mm-hmm. And so perhaps there's a there's a sense of um, uh, an elevated moment in which everything's at stake, right? In which you have to decide whether or not you want to affirm conflict in human life or or deny conflict in human life. Um, am I am I wrong that that's that was intended to be a pun? Yeah, no, I think you're you're right. Uh, I, though she at least never really writes it out explicitly, but there's lots of things that she's, um, how would I say, rather playfully, but also paidutically uh, not spelling out. So, correct. Yes, um, and so and I guess so. I, 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 part of the reason why I wanted to have you on, in addition to honoring Lise and and talking about this book, is um, I love teaching genealogy of morals. Um, it's, it's a, it's a challenging text. I mean, I think on purpose, it's a challenging text, but it's also a very rewarding text to read. And, and for some reason, I find it easier to get into with undergraduates than genealogy or than, um, beyond good and evil. Um, and so maybe just make this observation about Lisa's book that the chapter that I found most remarkable was, is the last chapter, um, the, which is entitled Psyche Airborne. And, but I think in order to say why that's remarkable, um, people have to understand something about how genealogy of morals works. And um, and so I thought, if you'll indulge me, if, I have theories about this book that, that have never been tested with an actual Nietzsche expert. They've only been tested on undergraduates who <laughs> right, uh, don't push back. So, um, but, so I, I just wonder if you, we could talk a little bit about genealogy of morals as a, as a way of preparing to say something about lease at the end. Is that okay with you? Certainly. Um, And maybe start with this observation that many of our our friends who study in political theory, who study Nietzsche, um, teach this book as as Nietzsche the relativist. They teach him as a kind of um, bad boy of modern political theory. If you don't have an absolute truth, you're going to end up like Nietzsche and that blonde beast from the genealogy of morals. And it's very much a cautionary tale. Um, and that's very much not the the Nietzsche that Lise finds. Uh, I think is a is a, a fair statement. Um, and so I, I want I just it, maybe try this out. It, it seems to me that the structure of genealogy of morals has a spiraling character. That that it looks like it's three essays that are not really related, but but in, after you get to the end of the book and it looks like things are unfolding with an argument that, that was never spelled out at the beginning at the references at the beginning of the book that show up again at the end of the book. Uh, and one such reference, uh, is the very first line of the book about, uh, we men of knowledge, right. That, uh, we men of knowledge, um, we don't know ourselves. Right. And it seems to me that it sets up this theme of, of self-knowledge, which I, I take it as part of the, the theme of the book. Um, that shows up again in the last section of of, of the the book. Does that sound right to you? Well, yeah, I think um, the very first section of the preface is uh, rather interesting because of, it draws that conclusion. I think that those who are pursuing knowledge, we knowing ones, uh, are doing so in a way that makes it an almost inevitable they won't know themselves there's a, a part in the middle where um, they get disturbed i think by the, the sound of a clock and they really don't know how many uh, times the clock has rung because they've been immersed in i think the picture by the way of the first the first section of the, the preface is 
of a certain kind of pursuit of knowledge that is of um, what is understood to be the very respectable scientific approach of being disinterested. And I think the subsequent sections of the, of the preface are very personal, biographical, and historical. And uh, they are very much the depiction of someone who is interested and whose interests guide and shape and give a unity to everything that uh, someone pursues. So to some degree, the, the distinction between the first section of the preface and the rest of the preface is a distinction between what Nietzsche would call scholars, human beings who have tried to become disinterested. They can't be successful, by the way, because if you become fully disinterested, you'd be rather fully non-human. You wouldn't care. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't engage in your pursuit anymore. I, I think that's right. Um, and it also means, I think, well, I mean, they're seeking not to care in a way, <laughs> but it's, there, it's a kind of, if one thinks it through, a kind of self-undermining situation. It's connected to becoming unegoistic moral, morally. That is, yeah. they seek to deny their self because they understand their, their self to be a kind of bias that gets in their way from seeing the things that are as they are. But the, their model of seeing the things that are is the model, I think, of seeing how things would be without human beings. Right. The world we without human the way, beings. Messing things up. Right. And yeah. So we understand, you know, and this is not uncommon, I think, especially as a scientific model to think what we what we really want to see is what would these things be without our interference, without our adulteration and without our particular biased perspectives. So we could only know if we committed suicide. Something like that. Yeah. Right. I mean, doesn't it make sense that they they want to see a world without the humans in it? as it would be without the humans in it. But that means they, they don't realize that the world is as it is because human beings are in it. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's connected with something else. I mean, so there's this figure, so uh, there's this other book that he criticizes called Origins of Moral Sensations, which sounds yeah. suspiciously like, like a translation that's, of Genealogy of Morals. Right. And there's this other guy, Paul Ray, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, that's how um, I pronounce it. But it, and it, seem, it seems to me the whole book is in, all of Nietzsche's book is in a way dialectical because he's pushing off against this other figure who turns out to be a kind of um, Darwinian progressive, right? And there's this wonderful phrase that I love and I always talk about in class um, uh, in Paul Ray, I think it's Paul Ray, the Darwinian beast and the ultra modern unassuming moral milksop. This is Kaufman's translation. Um, <laughs> or hold, hold hands, right? The, the milk, milksop who no longer bites. And it always struck me that, that part of the point of genealogy of morals is to say it's a challenge to a kind of progressive egalitarianism that wants to say, on the one hand, our theoretical foundation is Darwin, it's evolution, but our moral stance is egalitarianism and altruism. And one sees this combination all the time, still today, right? Like there are many people, in fact, it's maybe even a dominant understanding of the world and of morality. But I think partly Nietzsche just wants to say, well, if you think about those two premises, the theoretical premise of Darwin plus the moral premise of altruism, that really makes no sense whatsoever that those two things could be true at the same time. And many of the things that he says in the book that sound offensive are him trying to 
show that contradiction, to point out that contradiction again and again. Um, is that a is that a fair statement? Do you think? I I've been uh, reading Darwin rather recently too, so and thinking about it. And I and when I wrote my dissertation, I, I did, devoted a, a chapter to Lamarckism and Nietzsche and some of the contrast. And maybe I'd say this: I, Nietzsche appreciates Darwin, and certainly I think the the. The conflict of principles that you describe is something Nietzsche is um, trying to present in this book, certainly. But I think also there's something that he thinks is maybe missing in Darwin that he also wishes to present. And maybe the, the easiest way to say this is Darwin has a, a wholly external principle of, of change. The theory of natural selection suggests that living beings are subjected to forces that give uh, differential outcomes for differential traits. And the consequence of that is then descent with modification yeah. and evolution. Right. Yeah. Nietzsche thinks that living beings have, how would I say it, active principles of change built into them so that they would change even if the outside world did, didn't do anything to them. And that's, in a way, allied more closely to Lamarck's theories. That is, Lamarck thought there was an internal principle of uh, change that caused living beings to develop ever more complexity over time. Nietzsche seems to think that if there's nothing outside of, of a living being that's stimulating them, the living being would still have urges to do things. Rather, you know, so in, at least spontaneous activity in the sense that they have self-starting motions that they will will make regardless of the circumstance or the environment. I mean, I guess the Darwin theory would, you if you looked at an organism, you would, and you correctly interpreted it, it would be a kind of negative of its outside. It, there wouldn't be anything separate, right? Well, I mean, the, there's the, all the long genealogical history of a sequence of these things, but I think what you're saying is, is correct. And, the, and so the thing that Nietzsche really thinks is missing in Darwin is, how would I say, what he thinks is the fundamental thing about life, that living things have an internal drive to do things. Uh, in in the Beyond Good and Evil, the v most important description of the will to power in anything Nietzsche wrote, I think, is where he says the will to life is just a, an exception. It's just one form of the will to power. Yeah, the fundamental form is, uh, in German, auslassen, letting out, expressing. That's it. A living being, regardless of what's possible and regardless of whether the circumstances favor it or disfavor it, they will try to do things that they that are in a way determined by their own internal urge. They'll try to be themselves. Yeah. Even, even if that means that they're going to use themselves up and die, right? right? Right. Right. You know, like the mother who gets killed by running in front of the car to save the child or something, right? That there's there's a kind of But even know, the dog, for instance, that chases the car and bites its tire is, you know, the same thing. It's it's doing what it wants to do, even if it's utterly stupid and squanders its possibilities. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So, um, but I mean, it just, I mean, it, it seems to me that part of the, the shocking thing, and we should talk about essay one and genealogy, right? Because that's where, you know, he seems to be praising the, the barbarians the most, right? And that this famous, infamous phrase of the blonde beast that, that I want to talk a little bit about. Um, but, but if you think about it, if, if um, he's talking to people who basically their theoretical picture of the world is uh, heartless competition, and from that, they infer uh, a picture sort of like John Lennon's Imagine, right? If we could all yeah. just be nice to each other. And, and, um, and I think partly what's going on in essay one, where he, he's really pushing it in your face about um, he wants the blonde beast to be in the foreground, even though I think his own account is quite a bit more complicated than it seems there, um, is that he wants to say, look, on your own account, this is this was what must have been the case. Right? Is that there was, if if morality was created, there had to be someone before morality, who had no moral compunctions whatsoever and did whatever they wanted, and was somehow at the origin of this long story that you're telling, right? So so there there is something that I just find so um, humorous about. I'm not sure if that's the right word for hor the horrible things that are discussed in in essay one. Um, but yeah, so tell me what you think about that. Well, we might, um, how are symptoms? I think, by the way, we might laugh when we are discomforted. And, uh, and maybe that's even the fundamental form of laughter. It's not always so clear to me that laughter is a pleasure. Um, but I guess I want to say about the, the blondes, <laughs> if I could just say that. Uh, the, the blonde... First, of, first appears in the genealogy as just one of the typical character traits by which a, a conquering race might distinguish itself from the race it conquered. So it becomes blondes against uh, dark haired, dark black haired peoples. But I think that's there, it's just one example. And it's not the primary example. The, the general designations are, have much more to do with being pure or being truer or something like this rather. So this is one of the most primitive and uh, obvious distinctions human beings might notice that mark their tribe as different from the tribe that they, they conquer. And that's the fundamental basis I think that Nietzsche traces moral invention back to is that one group conquered by another uh, exhibits a, a kind of difference from the, their conquerors. And the conquerors discovering, I think, or embracing the great pleasure of naming things, that is the feeling of power that one has just by imposing your intellectual will on the world and framing concepts and naming things. That's the primary primitive origin of morality that, that Nietzsche finds is commanding, ruling, victorious tribes name things. And one of the things that they like to name is their, their feeling of separation and distance from them between themselves and those that they've conquered. So we have something like the origin of, of society, which has an intrinsic uh, sort of aristocratic character to it because it, oh, the origin is the conquest of one group by, by another group. We get something like the origin of language that it begins with society. 
the conquering group discovers the great delight of, of commanding the linguistic world into existence. And you get a very primitive account. I mean, Nietzsche is looking backwards toward things I think he knows we have no full historical record of. That is, he's looking back into what we would properly call human prehistory. Yeah. And trying to give a description of it that he finds plausible and rational and superior to the kinds of accounts that English psychologists have been giving and Herbert, Herbert Spencer has been giving right. and that maybe the early modern political philosophers gave when they tried to reason back to a state of nature. He's trying to give, and I think he asks us to do something very hard, which is imagine a very primitive, but one might, one might say uh, anatomically modern human being at the dawn of social life. And of consciousness. And of consciousness. Perhaps that's even pre-consciousness. Right. Well, consciousness, language, and society come, to get, come into being in the same time, in, in the same mix. And yes, I think especially the conquerors who didn't win because they were uh, particularly smart, right? Yes. But won because of a certain kind of uh, toughness and savagery. They, they are the beginning of these of, of thoughtfulness, we could say, and it's not very thoughtful. Well, so we, we should say, I mean, and this is what I think is one of the ironies of the first essay and, and why the people who read it is only about, right, the, the violence of the blonde beast are, are missing a big part, right, is that the great irony, of course, is that the slave morality turns out to win, right? Yeah. <laughs> that the slave morality uh, turns out to be stronger. It turns out to... Um, brainwash the the nobles, right? And so he gets to the end of the essay and he's like, well, human history up till now has been from a certain point of view, a struggle between let's call it Rome, which would be the conquering, we're superior, we should conquer the world exemplified by by Rome uh, and Judea, which is um, that, you know, the poor people, the weak are, um, shall inherit the earth, right? All that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he says in Ecce Homo, as you know well, right, that, that this essay is about the birth of Christianity. Yeah. Right? And so to think that somehow, you know, it's simply about the, the blonde beast at the beginning is to really miss. Um, why, why is it that, they, why is it that the, the slave morality wins? I think uh, because it, well, maybe I'd say this. Those who are in the underclass, the slaves, are compelled to become more intelligent. They are, because they're in the inferior position and serve, they're acting as servants to another class of people, they have to pay attention to that other class in a way that the ruling class really doesn't have to pay attention to other, pe other people so much. They have to, for instance, place themselves in positions where they're close enough to be summoned and respond quickly and where they might even have to anticipate the desires of their masters. And they have to also develop powers of patience because they can't act immediately on their desires and urges. They're not allowed to indulge themselves or assert themselves. So they have to become a being that develops an interior life that waits, that predicts, that is temporally stretched and projective 
all sorts of complications. And also they have to suffer internal frustrations in a way that the blonde beast does not. In fact, I think the paradigm of the blonde beast is when they get outside of their own society and they unleash themselves in sort of um, explosions of violence on other people who aren't part of their group. This dissipates any internal frustrations they might have, and it tends to prevent them from developing any kind of complex interiority. And in fact, Nietzsche even suggests after uh, you know an, an escapade uh, out amongst those who don't belong in, the, in their group of rape and pillage and arson, that they might come home with no disturbance of their consciousness whatsoever, as if right. they've been out on some right. kind of a fraternal prank or something like that. Right, right. So and, but, and these people who are stupid, <laughs> if I put it, made stupid by their, or how to say, preserved in their rather coarse, primitive stupidity, right. Yes, are facing off against people who are becoming more and more interior, more and more delayed in their behavior, more indirect in their ways of getting things done, and much more intelligent. And those people invent... Uh, a series of claims that try to put the, the the nobles, the noble masters at odds with their own natural urges. They try to convince them that the things that they want to do are wrong, that their even their their powerful ruling behaviors are fundamentally moral transgressions. And because the nobles are not good at reasoning or arguing, in fact, their use of language in this primitive state is primarily to command. And they're not used to lying either very much because they're powerful and don't have reasons to lie. They can't understand. In fact, they would find it, I think, very um, dissatisfying to have to perform an action indirectly. Why can't I just go up and smash them? They'd say, <laughs> right? Right. You could see this if you ever if you look at um, Sophocles Philoctetes. I was going to say if you look at high school students. But oh, I was going to okay, but I mean, I'll stay <laughs> at the at the level of Sophocles. Um, Odysseus tries to convince Achilles' son to go and lie to this poor crippled man in, in order to steal his the very powerful man. bow. Yeah, yeah, spout powerful bow that they need to fight the Trojan War. And, uh, and Achilles' son, Neoptolemus, repeatedly says, can't I just go attack him? Right. He has no objection, no objection at all to- On moral grounds. You know, defeating uh, with violence a, a crippled foe. Right. But he doesn't want to go lie to the man. Right. That's, that's a kind of exemplar of this sort of noble obtuseness. Right. So, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, it, I have to say essay one reminds me a little bit of Hegel's master-slave dialectic. Sure. The master wins, but the slave is the future, right? And somehow the slave morality, right? And Nietzsche, Nietzsche is going to have lots of bad things to say about it, but even on his account, the, the slave morality is somehow the matrix of what it means to become human, right? Even for, for us still living today. And, and so at the end of essay one, one of my favorite lines, he says, it's a, you know, today, in the 19th century, it's a mark of a higher, more spiritual nature to be a battleground of these two things, that they're both alive within our own heads. 
And so, I, and I think you have you would have to go back and reinterpret the essay as partly being a, a literal story about what happened in prehistory, but also about these archetypes that still live as um, sort of characters in our mental dramas. And and maybe to just to say this, I mean the um, the the person of resentment um, who um, their their understanding of themselves is defined by their hatred of the the bullies right the um and you can tell a sort of a high school story that would be like this right there's some people who are blonde and beautiful who are good on the uh, on the football team who get to date the cheerleader and don't always follow by the rules but everyone still likes them and then there's the 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 nerd who is uh, offended by this and gets a chip on their shoulder and hates with a furious passion the the you know the head of the football team, but if you come back at the high school reunion, the nerd has you know become Steve Jobs and rules the world, <laughs> whereas the, the the high school quarterback is you know a, a pretty pretty lousy real estate agent or something, right? <laughs> but but um but that 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 burning hatred of the person of resentment is is a powerful creative force and much more powerful in a way than the physical power of of the the original barbarians right um and i guess you would say but it you're to me at the end of essay one you're sort of left with this conflict the 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 barbarians say yes to themselves or as we'd say they have they have high self-esteem yeah right and and there's something that's attractive about that the person of resentment hates themselves and hate but hates this other thing more and they are they're able to conquer the world, but they they're completely miserable, right? Or they 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 cannot affirm themselves, and so it looks to me like um, in order to have true human flourishing, you would have to somehow combine the two, right? That would be a, a formula, which is not to say that I know what the you know that would look like worked out, but that that to me looks like where essay one ends up. This makes sense to me, Tom, and also. Um... Maybe starting from where you started with the comparison to Hegel's master-slave dialectic. Um, there is this similarity, but I take it there's a, this difference. Nietzsche doesn't like to throw anything away. He's um, ultimate recycler, if I could put it that way. That is, in a way, what Nietzsche sees when he sees something he doesn't uh, like is he sees a, a limit in his own power to make something good of it. So, and his, I think his dream is that nothing would be left in the situation where one would want to reject it or throw it away or leave it behind. Whereas I think the Hegelian dialectic actually really leaves the master behind. That, mm. that has, a, it's a certain development, it's a dead end. The dialectic continues out from, from the slave side. For Nietzsche, the model of, of self-affirmation, of genuine, uh, I want to say, uh, of genuine saying yes to life belongs to the side of the masters. They say, they look at themselves and they really say yes, and they're not deluded or, or something like this. They don't even understand vanity very well. They can't understand why someone would want to pretend to think better of themselves or have right. others think better of themselves. Right. The slave side brings all the powers of human the human intellect and its development, which initially is very weak. It has no, gra uh, you know, it has no chance of working against someone who won't listen 
or someone who says, stop, stop talking and do what I say. Right. But right. once human beings start developing these powers, they become one discovers, and I think it's not that strange to think that it's mind that runs the world. And the beings that develop mind more fully have much greater capacity, but they have almost a built-in dissatisfaction to that method because of the way it originates. It, re it originates as something you don't want to do. It originates as frustration, as internal complication, as putting yourself at odds with yourself because there's what you want to do on the one hand, and there's this, this uh, thought that says, not now, wait, or not that way, but let's do it some other way. Or what about the long term, right? All of which win in the end, or another way to say it, Odysseus wins the Trojan War, not Achilles. Yes. Right? That, that really is hard to marry with liking yourself. <laughs> right. I take even, even the name Odysseus, if I remember correctly, he's named by his grandfather. It means something like the hated one. Uh, yeah, that's, that sounds right. I mean, uh, but I mean, to move from Nietzsche to a different level, I mean, we see this all around us, right? Like mm -hmm. the people who are the most successful in the world are also, you know, what are the ills of our of our world? Anxiety and depression, right? Like on some level, we ha we have to keep working so we can distract ourselves from the fact that we really don't like ourselves, and we cannot look at ourselves and be at peace with ourselves. Right. It just seems to me that that in some way Nietzsche describes the world that I see correctly, um, which is not to say that I know what what it would mean to be able to affirm yourself in some fuller way. Right. Could, could I say something that might be a, a little bit jump ahead of where we are right now, but it, it, it's connected. The. The third essay of the, uh, the genealogy, you know, which has the bears this question as a title, what is the meaning of the ascetic ideal? Um, Nietzsche begins by that essay, once it gets going, past the first section, with a kind of interrogation of what a whole series of different human types have found to be the meaning for them in the ascetic ideal, the ideal that is um, essentially minimizing the effects of this world so that it becomes more, more like the other world or the afterworld, trying to you know, deny oneself all sorts of pleasures and indulgences, minimize li life. There's a whole bunch of things that different kinds of people find in that ascetic ideal. And I think what Nietzsche sees there is though the ideal itself would seem to be life-hating or life-denying, Living beings are the source of that ideal and the source of its continuance. And that means they are finding some mode of life expression for themselves in that ideal. So it serves a purpose for each of them, even if, it's a, even if the general and prevailing effect of this ideal is lasting weariness with human life and possible a final sort of settling into despair about hum the human future. So what Nietzsche really does when looking at that, you'd think, let's throw away all these people who are attached to the ascetic ideal. Let's not do things the way they do them. But what Nietzsche actually presents in that essay is, and I think Lisa's book is very good at, at pulling this out. It takes 
what each of those types finds to be a mode of expression of their own life urge in the ascetic ideal. It takes each of those expressions and tries to combine them in a comprehensive human being who has just those expressions and none of the none of the particularly negative orientation. So it's sort of trying to knit together the satisfactions that these nihilistic human types found in their nihilistic devotion and weld them together into a human being that could affirm itself because it's satisfied in many different ways. Are you saying this? that's what Nietzsche is trying to do or that's what these different examples of the ascetic ideal are doing? No, I think, well, each, I think Nietzsche's analysis is, um, advances from the thought that these are people who are anti-life or uh, yeah. anti-world into the thought no living being can be anti-life. Yeah. yeah, It must be doing something for itself. Even if, for instance, um, all it does is go home and beat its children, right? That that's some kind of expression of its own urge to live. It's a terrible one and it's uh, got a bad future, right? right? Yeah. But it is a way in which this maybe this being has found something that ties it to life and allows it to express its urges. And Nietzsche wants to take those expressions and combine them into a comprehensive being that is fundamentally affirmative. So he's, he, I want to just say, he's not trying to reject these things so much right. as re repurpose them or redirect these expressions. Well, let me, let me ask, let me ask about that. Um, I mean, it seems to me on Nietzsche's account that you might say that to be a human being at our stage of history is to um, torture ourselves in various ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that we can give different accounts of what the meaning of that torturing is um, different political theories or ideologies or what have you. Um, but it's, it's somehow part of what we do is that we, we do these things. And so, uh, but the, but the, the problem of nihilism is that when we, we can no, no longer give an account of what the meaning is. Right. And to me, this is the, the very powerful ending of the whole book. Right. Um, in which he says, people actually don't mind suffering. They don't mind suffering. They don't mind making other people suffer and they don't mind suffering themselves so much as the thing that they really can't stand is when the suffering has no purpose. And you see this with students, right? Students are perfectly happy to get a C if you can explain to them, you didn't understand these four things, but if they think the class is BS, <laughs> that's when they sure. rebel, right? That's, and that's, that's a perfectly normal human response. But so the, the human animal is the animal that makes itself suffer, but that needs to give some account of itself of what is this for? And so far, we don't really have, according to Nietzsche, that's the, I guess, the drama of the third essay. We don't really have an account that's satisfying, right? Yeah. There, I think, you know, Nietzsche, um, I want to say, seems to think that the, one, one of the virtues, I think, of the dominant morality that leads to nihilism is um, the, the, presumptive value of truth. And I mean, in some ways, I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche wants to say, we have built into ourselves uh, as a kind of evolutionary development now, uh, a need for accounts and a presumption that when we don't have an account, something's wrong. 
Uh, so dissatisfaction that's built into that. Yeah. But it's also that the pressure for these accounts that uh, is placed upon the claims that have been made about the world tends to undermine them. That is, they get exposed, especially if one takes morality to have been invented by human beings. When it's exposed that it's an invention of human beings, that by itself undermines its claim of, of truth in a certain way, at least for a certain kind of knower, maybe the knower that belongs to that first um, section of the preface. Uh, the whole book, Human All to Human, I think is meant to, in many respects, to show that for many people, if you show that something has a merely human origin, you have, you have devalued it. You have exposed it and collapsed its authority over them. Yeah. And then I think some attempt to try to show that there's a way in which we could be satisfied with uh, a world that is substantially dependent upon human effort, human making. That is, if we if we didn't raise certain kind of unrealistic standards, what we are and what we do would actually be very impressive and very uh, satisfying. We're if we look at what we can do. This is one of the things Nietzsche said. If we look what the human animal can do, and we don't measure it against what we hope we wish the human animal could do, the human animal is very impressive. If we measure them against our hopes. The human animal looks rather pathetic. Yeah. So let me uh, let me close up one thing, and then and then I want to ask you about the last section of the third essay. I mean, just just to say something about the second essay, which seems to me in some ways the most important. I mean, the the theme there, one of the important themes there, is the internalization of human beings. And he's got this great line where he says, "It doesn't happen in the blonde beast, but it couldn't have happened without the blonde beast, <laughs> right?" That somehow you need the moment of tyranny that forces other people to turn inwards. And he calls it the bad conscience. He says it's, and there's all kinds of metaphors of pregnancy, right? I mean, right. Could, uh, a feminist could go a long way <laughs> in finding, right, that somehow you know that uh, the, the feminine dimension of the human being is is present there. That the womb of all of art comes out of the bad conscience, comes out of this turning inwards, right? Which which I think confirms what we were saying before about um, the master and the slave. Um, but let's let's. So one of the things that's funny about this book is it seems to me that the peak is in the middle. That there's this sort of uh, essay two has got this this very rich discussion of internalization, and then the beginning of essay three has got this discussion of the philosopher who looks like he's the only person who can stand on his own two feet, right? That that he would be the person who would somehow combine um, human self affirmation with the the history that's been created by resentment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and whether or not that works, that, that may be a question for another day. But but that that does look like. Uh, I mean, in a way, Nietzsche is like Plato, right? The philosopher should rule, right? That's the that's the thing that many people just, he's not a relativist at all. He's uh, <laughs> he's sort of the opposite. Um, but, the, but the weird thing about the book is that um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche doesn't spell everything out. And the closer he gets to the end, he, he leaves us with a cliffhanger. He wants to, uh, you know, as the Marxists say, heighten the contradictions. And so as you get closer to the end, you start to have this, um, forgive me, Michael, but the oh shit moment, <laughs> like everything is going to fall apart. And, and, the, and the theme is um, that he's a he goes back to the we met of knowledge, right? At the beginning of the third section, he uh, of the, the third section of the third essay, he repeats that phrase. And so there's a sense in which everything that has been going on up until now 
has been digging underneath that very beginning point. Now we're back at the beginning with sharper eyes and with a stronger sense of, of what's going on. Uh, and the, the conflict that he presents there is, so you men of knowledge, you men of the enlightenment, you've destroyed Christianity, you've, or at least you've destroyed the Christian God. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you've done so because you've internalized this ascetic ideal, because you think that the truth is something that's worth knowing for itself, that you still have faith. You still have something, uh, uh, an assumption that you haven't examined. Mm -hmm. And so that you are contradictory in yourself. And then once you realize that the wheels are going to come off and there's no telling where we're going to end up and the book ends. Right? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's a, that's a scary thing. Right. I mean, and I think that he, he means it to be scary. Can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah, so I think the I want to say the problem that we talked about earlier with the the men of knowledge that are discussed in the beginning of the preface was this uh, devotion to truth without interest, if if we could call it that. Um, and I thought the thing that Nietzsche began very in a way, very, very obliquely in the preface to criticize was there's the sense that the, the human concerns and human interests were somehow an intrusion or an obstruction of the attempt to get knowledge. In a way, even Hegel exemplifies this, right? He wants to see the things without being separated from them. Right. right. Whereas being a, a an interested living being with its own urges and purposes imposing demands upon the world that is i think compatible with knowledge on nietzsche's standpoint but not knowledge that has this kind of utterly absolute character to it it's, it's knowledge of the knowledge you would find in plato's phaedo right right the, the surface teaching of plato's phaedo yeah, not yeah. The the which is the surface teaching is kind of um, Platonism of a certain sort, yes. right? There's and and in this respect, that version of Plato, where where the forms are uh, self-subsisting beings of another world, eternal and unchanging, is just as nihilistic as the Christian God, if I could put it. Um, at at the beginning yeah. of the third essay, Nietzsche says that the human being would rather will the nothing, the nothing, than, than not to will. And he ends the third essay with that same claim. Uh, and I think Lisa in her book rightly points out, it seems to me, that in a way at, at the end of the first section of the third essay, Nietzsche has already answered the question he's raised, but he finds it necessary to go a, through a longer way in order to make things more more available, or maybe to height, maybe to heighten the contradiction. Can I, can I say something about the willing yeah. nothing versus not willing? That yeah. uh, it, it seems to me, I mean, two uh, character types that we know from our world, the couch potato who has no activity <laughs> of soul, right? And this is what Tocqueville was worried about with individualism and right, that that's not willing. Um, that's one option, but the other option would seem to be the school shooter, right? Who is, uh, uh, willing actively willing nothing right that if that's not nihilism i don't know what <laughs> is i mean so the school shooter is it's kind of different from the serial killer right the serial killer wants to kill people and get away with it the school shooter wants to kill himself and then kill it's like suicide plus right, right? that's the that's the the essence but 
but that's the, that's the central um, tragedy or fear of our, of our time is that those are the only options um, for, for human beings. Yeah, and I think probably how to put it, Nietzsche, you know, is psychologically startling at times in terms of the ways in which he an analyzes human beings. And I don't know that he analyzed a couch potato exactly, but I think I, maybe I can think of a certain set of connections. But it seems to me even the couch potato Nietzsche probably would think of as willing the nothing. Because you can't, you can't actually not will. Yeah, this is the thing. Um, this this connects, I think, to the sense that being alive means that you have these active internal urges, that you're not merely a responder to external stimuli, but that left to yourself and un unhindered or unlimited by external pressures, you will do things. The couch potato, I suspect, is a self-torturer as well who at some, in some part of themselves, and of course we have to, I think, talk when we talk psychologically here of a being that has many parts or many sub-wills or sub-souls, yeah. drives primarily is what Nietzsche calls them. That being has some part of themselves that likes to root them to a couch as if they captured, as if that part has captured the rest and is ruining it. Yeah. But that ruination is empowering to the part that at least determines it. It's some. It's something like self-mutilation. The self-mutilator who would love to be beautiful but doesn't see any way that they could make themselves beautiful sees a very clear way that they could feel powerful by destroying themselves. Right, right, right. And I suspect ultimately in a very um, a slothful version of this, the couch potato right, is... Right. They're on the couch It's some part thinking, it's terrible I'm on the couch. And this other part that's saying, and I'm going to keep you there. <laughs> yeah. That is, this is the, the self-torture that you talked about before. Uh, Nietzsche even connects it in, in uh, Beyond Good and Evil uh, to, to uh, philosophy. Right. There's, there's a part that likes to make you feel all the, the painful uncomfortableness of the things that are new and different. That you in, want to face up to the ugly truth, right? And you take well, a certain pleasure in the pain that you give yourself when you, uh, yeah. And it's not so much uh, that the truth itself necessarily is ugly. Anything that's new and different is disruptive and in a way painful. At the same time, of course, Nietzsche, by the way, more than most people I've ever encountered, he loves to think and he loves to understand things. And he expresses this, for instance, in Dawn 550, where he really indicates to certain people, himself, Plato amongst others, uh, even Descartes, he says, um, and Spinoza, they love to know things, to come to know things. And it's an enjoyable experience, no matter what the character of the knowing is, even if it's ugly, there's something pleasant about knowing something. But I think it, aside from that, there's something painful and challenging in forcing yourself to know what's different and new about something. And there, I think Nietzsche thinks there's some cruel will within us, a part of us that has discovered its own mode of expression in forcing the rest of us to go through that. 
And there's I mean, lots he, of things like that. Yeah, I mean, he's but he thinks that in a way, as you say, knowing is is maybe the fullest human life. But he's going to because uh, because of his understanding of the rest of the world, he's going to reinterpret that as an expression of some kind of will to power. Sure. Is that a fair statement? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, on the will to power, it, where is Nietzsche? Um, how committed is he to the thought that um, the world is will to power and nothing else? Uh, I don't know, Michael. You tell me. I thought that was the. I thought that isn't that what he says in uh, uh, the, the will to power, nothing else. The, the aphorism yeah. from Beyond Good and Evil. Yeah. So in in Beyond Good and Evil thirty six, he goes through a sort of sequence of proposing that one could understand the whole world according to the will to power. But he starts with the thought that we could understand the world, our inner world of thought and perception, feeling in terms of will to power. And then he proposes the possibility that we could extend that understanding of the inner world to the outer world. It but looks the primary to me like that, psychology. Yeah. yeah. It just looks to me like the extension of the will to power to understand to the understanding beyond our uh, the understanding of our inner experience is at least hypothetical for Nietzsche there can okay. we and yes could it be pushed to the point of nonsense or absurdity in Kaufman's translation could it be pushed to the point of unsinn right uh, and he suggests that the morality of method uh, requires that we at least make the attempt to understand everything according to one principle but he does indicate it might lead to nonsense and he's not so committed there, I would say. So ev after that, he starts saying the world is will to power and nothing else. But that's after a, a very hypothetical beginning. Uh, so, so, but let me get it straight. So, so the the primary evidence for will to power is human psychology that helps us understand ourselves yeah. better, and that that will go along with the we men of knowledge are not self knowing, right? It's a, it's a deep theme of genealogy. Um, but I guess you would you would it's still an open question whether will to power explains um, I don't know asteroids, right? Or space rocks, or you right. know I don't know like space in general, right? Um, but it might that. explain our, our, even our drive to knowledge or our attraction to knowledge. Okay. I mean, that, that is, that might be explained, but maybe even because of what you were saying earlier, um, the power of mind is much greater than the power of body, much, much greater. Our inner realm is a much vaster set of possibilities and, um, and the realm of other human minds is a vaster set of possibilities than even the realm of other human bodies. I mean, and that's that in a way points to the central importance of liberal education, right? That what we think about ourselves is quite important for what we actually are. I, I you know, I might say it's constitutive of the world. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, forget about the world. All I care about yeah. is liberal education. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so let's um, let's let's uh, try to draw this circle close. Um, I, I want to say something about Lisa's book about the, that last chapter because the thing that strikes me as strange about chapter seven of the book, Nietzsche leaves us with this this crisis, right? The crisis of nihilism. Which I think he is not his final word. As as you you can't read the rest of the corpus and think that's his final word. But he he wants to leave you with this cliffhanger so that um, I mean he says in Ecce Homo this is a fishhook book that's meant to get your attention so then you'll go back and read Beyond Good and Evil and Zarathustra. Um, 
so, but what Lise does in that last chapter is that she tries to spell out her understanding from within genealogy of, of, of why the crisis that Nietzsche ends with is not actually the end of the, the story. Is that a fair statement? Oh, and, yeah, very much so. And she, and she has some very interesting interpretive interpretations um, that she interprets hints and she interprets things that are, that are alluded to, but that are missing um, that we don't have time to go into here, but it's um, it. And to me, it, it, it's remarkable because it, it's a very personal uh, attempt to say what that something like that has to be true. It's not clear to me that Lisa's interpretation is the final word on it. I don't know enough about Nietzsche. I don't know enough about the world, but um, it's a, it's a remarkable text, right? That, that last chapter. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, in one way, I guess, least points to you know the the strong sort of textual connections of repeated phrases right so that if one finds the same sort of phrase and it has the same sort of effect in each of the three essays right, that's one way to connect them and make make the and looking at that is one way to unify each of the three essays but i think the other suggestion really is um, maybe it's twofold. One is that there's a kind of promise of carrying out a history of morality uh, that is assigned to uh, a work that Nietzsche never wrote, but maybe made some plans for in his notebooks and things like this. And Lee suggests that that at least an example of that is carried out in the second essay. So that what Nietzsche is pointing calling for and pointing to is in fact carried out in the second essay. And I think the other thing that is not unrelated is the presentation of a counter ideal to the ascetic ideal. So if the problem of the ascetic ideal and of nihilism is that in the absence of something to will, human beings will turn to willing the nothing, the nothing, and, and particularly, I mean, your your example of the, the shooters is a good one. I mean, an active, willing annihilation. I mean, it's of a way of responsibility for the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a bad, horrible way, but yeah. Right. Well, I, well, I don't know ultimately which is the greater horror, especially if I'm right about couch potatoes. <laughs> uh, is a world sunken into the couch potato death? that's something like the heat death of the universe, right? Uh, maximal entropy in the human form. Right, right, right. Uh, that might be worse than human beings who at least... Why do we have to compare? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I think I'll just stay away it's from Morgan's that. Morgan's <laughs> Well, they're both very, very bleak. Uh, one's more long-lasting. Yes. Um, the counter-ideal is the thing I think that Nietzsche... Nietzsche's book is really calling for at the end, you know, something to will that isn't the ascetic ideal, something that one could will instead of the nothing. Can I ask a, a question? Yeah. Uh, one phrase that does not appear in this book, uh, eternal recurrence of the same. Right. Why? I mean, I, I mean, I want to say I don't fully know, but in another sense, maybe I could say um, something. It, you know, in the 
it doesn't occur in, in some of the later books of Nietzsche as well. And, and so, though the eternal recurrence of the same, I think, is some attempt by Nietzsche to present something about an affirmative ideal, it might not be the most concrete way to present an affirmative ideal. And I think the affirmation that Lisa's book teases out of the genealogy is this attempt to construct a comprehensive human being that includes, for instance, the affirmative and rather healthy um, self-perspective of the primitive savage nobles with all the riches of the internal complexity of the development of the mind that comes out of the slave revolt with all of its contradictions, but finding a certain way to make the many and contradictory parts work together and, and live together uh, and lend their energy to each other rather than spend their energy exhausting each other. So the construction of a, of a positive affirmative ideal in the ge genealogy takes the form of tracing out a kind of evolution of the philosophic life up to a point, I think, where, where there's this philosophic life that incorporates the virtues of warriors and incorporates the creativity of poets and can say that it really does have, um, I want to say, it comprehends in the sense of containing awareness of the ways in which other kinds of human beings experience the world and, and in some ability to deploy that awareness to use the various perspectives at will to view the world from different um, standpoints that, that are really standpoints of feeling or standpoints of drive that illuminate the world in terms of the respect of its sort of the full panoply of human experience. And that's, that's, that's combined with a kind of integral mastery over those, those possibilities. You would, you would say that, that you can't present the affirmative ideal as some freestanding abstract thing that would get you back into Platonism, um, but we oh. see it in action in genealogy. Well, I think the, especially the genealogical method of studying the, the coming into being of things and the various stages at which at which they arrive and and persist for a while and then transform that lends itself to this concrete presentation yeah i i don't think the uh, the presentation of the eternal return as itself is necessarily a too platonic but it has this character to it that i think maybe doesn't serve the purposes of the genealogy as well as others primarily the challenge to affirmation that's presented in the eternal return is the challenge of affirming the past and the genealogy has more to say about i think it's, it's especially again as lisa's reading it, it has more to say about what can we the future look at when we're predicting the future that is what is the present height of humanity and what sort of immediate future possibilities are suggested by that height yeah yeah well, so Michael, we're coming to the end of our time. Do you, do you want to um, read something? Yeah, let me read something from near the end of the 
the second essay of the genealogy. It's really the very end of section. And I will, I will say before you start, uh, within yeah. Lisa's book, there is discussion of a kind of uh, immortality, I believe is the end of chapter five. And so uh, we can't discuss it now, but we'll, we'll just let listeners well, come back and look it yeah, up. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, you have to go buy the book in order to find out about the eternal <laughs> life. <laughs> well, let me say just briefly, there's a, there's a series of... Um, I guess I want to say Christian terms, um, creation ex nihilo, spontaneity of a certain sort, uh, immortality, transcendence, that I think Warspeak tries to appropriate in a way that's a little bit subversive, um, maybe more than a little. That is, there's an attempt to repurpose the terminology of the opponents. And so I, I think there's an immortality, but it's immortality of this. Well, can I, it's immortality can I, of a certain sort. Can I ask a pesky question? Do you, do you yeah. think that Nietzsche thinks that some important truth about the human condition was revealed through Christianity, maybe not by Christianity, but through Christianity? Uh, I do think so. Um, I, certainly, uh, even even just the analysis of the ascetic ideal in certain way is pointing to things that human beings uh, are attracted to, things that offer them possibilities in life, things that they need. Although I think primarily Nietzsche is more interested in active urges uh, that aren't prompted by need, but he is of course aware that in a way a preponderance of human experience is founded on the basis of need. Hmm. And so I think it's it's revelatory. But I also want to say, in, in a way, um, everything that lasts and that human beings can live with is kind of uh, an experiment worthy of being carefully observed in terms of what it what it offers to show you about right. the human possibilities. Right. Yeah. yeah, OK. All right. So We're this is the end, so I have to ask all these like small questions. As we, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> small questions lead to the big things. I think that's the way I take it. Okay. So so tell us where you are. I'm at the end of um, the twenty fourth section of the second essay of the Genealogy of Morals. The last. It's the last paragraph in Kaufman's translation. I Got don't it. think there are paragraphs, but that's okay. Yeah. So it. I'll just start in uh, a, the second sentence or after this question Nietzsche raises. He says, but someday in a stronger age than this decaying, self-doubting present, he must yet come to us, the redeeming man of great love and contempt, the creative spirit whose compelling strength will not let him rest in any aloofness or any beyond, whose isolation is misunderstood by the people as if it were flight from, from reality, while it is only his absorption, immersion, penetration into reality, so that when he one day emerges again into the light, he may bring home the redemption of this reality. It's redemption from the curse that the hitherto reigning ideal has laid upon it. This man of the future who will redeem us not only from the hitherto reigning ideal, but also from that which was bound to grow out of it, the great nausea, the will to nothingness, nihilism, this bell stroke of noon and of the great decision that liberates the will again and restores its goal to the earth and his hope to man, this antichrist and anti-nihilist, 
this victor over God and nothingness. He must come one day. So, so Michael, I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but I, but I made just some some observations. So, so number one, this is a, a kind of answer to the crisis of the end of the third essay, right? That that it's a response to the crisis of nihilism. Uh, but number two, I just was noticing the bell stroke of noon picks up on the bell strokes from the the men of knowledge at the very beginning, right? Very and, much so. Yeah, this this yeah. Is, it's a beautiful thing, right? No, I, I couldn't, I know we haven't talked enough about that, but in a way, um, the the men of knowledge from the very beginning don't know themselves in some way. They're not paying attention to the things that are actually personal about them. And in the preface, Nietzsche suggests that for a philosopher, everything really is personal and is tied together by right. what is personal and united as if all the experiences and, and issues emerge from one single root. The men of knowledge are in some way rootless. They try to cut themselves off from the natural interests of their living beings. Uh, and, and then they try to pursue knowledge after that. And they, again, it's some attempt to redeem this world to end the human. But I think the last things that Nietzsche is saying here, you know, he wants to free the will up from its uh, being fixed upon the pathway of the ascetic ideal. He associates that with both nihilism and with God. And partially, I think, because when God gets undermined by the love of truth, when the truthful human beings finally find they cannot believe in God, they're left with nothing. But they have a tradition of, of serving this ideal and of sacrificing things to it. They even have a religious ladder of cruelty, just to borrow a phrase from Nietzsche. Uh, that is a, a long tradition of sacrifice. the tenure process, sir. <laughs> and, a ladder of cruelty. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's right. But this is the so the end of this second essay, Nietzsche is really announcing uh, what we need is an, a, another ideal, a different ideal from the ascetic. The only and I think he says it late in late in the third. The only reason why human beings have been attached to the ascetic ideal is because there really hasn't been a robust and satisfying counter ideal. Right. Yeah. Can, I, can I make one other interpretive point about, about sure. uh, section 24? Uh, so it, I, I hadn't noticed this before reading at this time, but, but since I'm interested in the we men of knowledge, um, because it's clearly rhymes from the beginning of the book to the, that last section, this section 24 is also about we men of knowledge, right? Yes. And so earlier he said, he uses the phrase, we modern men who are, are the heirs of the conscious vivisection and self-torture of millennia. I think that's we men of knowledge. He doesn't use the exact phrase, but I think it's the same. So there's a way in which, it's like a clock. It keeps coming back to the same point, but maybe in a deeper, <laughs> like it's like a spiral or something. Does that seem right? Oh, it does seem right. Um, I don't read. I don't read too much into the circularity of it. I mean, in this, well, put it this way. I know, I know uh, an interpreter who would say, "Look, it's a circle. It must be the eternal return." But I, I wouldn't say that. But what I would say is, of course, it's 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 crafted to do this, and. In a way, Nietzsche gets you started on something, but doesn't let you finish, and then brings you back to that something with inter interludes. This is part of the musicality of his writing. It's it's development of movements and themes. Right, right, yeah. right, right. 
Well, um, we should end, and I think we should end by saying something about lease that, that um, I mean, there's no, you know, the death is, is a horrible thing, right, for the person and for the, the people who love the person. Um, I guess if one were going to go, one would want to have done something beautiful, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, Lise didn't, I guess, didn't know, couldn't have known, but um, she did something that was humanly impressive, and that's a gift to the rest of us, right? Um, and I just think it's important for us to, to, you know, when I go, I hope that I go like that, right? Um, well, I, I'll say this, you know, I, I had many opportunities, I, I guess, to uh, read drafts of this work as Lisa was working on it. Um, and I'm still uh, impressed by how it came together and how to say it. the drafts didn't prepare me for the full power of the the book as it really came together and i'm still learning from it i'm still making me notice things i have 38 years of devotion to nietzsche under my belt and i've paid a lot of attention to things people have said about it this is a very impressive reading of nietzsche it can open up a lot of things for people and uh, i hope they pay attention to it and I'm sure Lise would be very gratified by uh, the way it's been treated so far. Yeah. Well, it, it is, uh, you know, to the conventional understanding of these things, this will sound the opposite, but it is a Nietzschean virtue of gratitude of a certain kind. Yeah. 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 Okay, Michael, I think that we're at the end. I want to say thank you to you for spending this time. It's It's been wonderful for me. I, I, I really enjoy it. And I, and I appreciate the book and I appreciate what you've done in bringing it out and look forward to your other Nietzschean writings and translations. Well, thank, thank you, Tom. I'm, I'm glad to uh, renew our acquaintance and to talk with you this morning. Good.